Now, it probably ages me a bit, but I suspect I'm not alone. Uh, I suspect a f- quite a few of you, I'll even say that, quite a few of you have uh, seen the famous 1985 movie Back to the Future. There's the picture of the DeLorean there. Uh, I think it's a fantastic movie where it's great fun, uh, where Marty McFly uh, gets to, to, to go in the time machine, go back uh, to see his family uh, when they were young in 1955 uh, and gets into all sorts of trouble uh, when, he, when he gets there. Uh, now, I'm a fan of the film, but I'm not as big a super fan as a guy called Nigel Mills. Now, Nigel Mills spent £22,000 buying his very own DeLorean. Um, uh, he only took it out, it's a special car for him, so he only took it out on rare occasions, but the one occasion in the summer of uh, 2016 when he did take it out, uh, he got caught for speeding uh, on the, the, the A12 in Essex. Now, for those of you who are fans of the movie, what speed do you think he was doing? Anyone guess? 88 miles an hour. He was clocked, ironically, at 88 miles an hour. Uh, now, he, he said... Um, now, for those of you who haven't seen the film, that is the speed that uh, Marty McFly needs to drive the DeLorean time machine to break the space-time continuum and to go back in time. Uh, Nigel Mills said, however, when he was interviewed by the Guardian newspaper, said, I wasn't trying to time travel. It was just 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning and the road was completely clear and I thought I'd give the car a run. Okay, so that's what he said. The fu- what made me laugh as I read through the rest of the article was actually he got away with it. He was called to court, but ironically, the two police officers who clocked him for speeding missed the court date, uh, and he was thrown, the case was thrown into court. He got away with it. Uh, so the, the article finished in The Guardian that um, Nigel Mills refused to comment, confirm or deny whether or not his DeLorean was fitted with a flux capacitor uh, or not. Um, now, you may not be a sci-fi fan. That may be something you're not interested in. But I think for many, many of us uh, in our culture today, we are fascinated with this idea of time travel. Time travel. Uh, I think that's evident in the fact that uh, Back to the Future, Terminator, Doctor Who are all such classic hits. Everyone still loves them, watches them over and over again. Uh, There's been a recent spate of movies and TV shows like Interstellar was about time travel in some way. Uh, Outlander is is about time travel. There's, there's There's a fascination in many of us with going back in time. The idea that you could go back somehow maybe to your past and undo something you now regret. That's a very attractive idea. Or that you could be present at some moment, in a significant moment in the past, from the future to see it and experience it. That's again a very attractive idea. But it's all impossible. It's even theoretically impossible. Um, because it's just fantasy. It's just fantasy. That's what makes it such good fun to think about. Because it's impossible. Because our pers- our, from our perspective, time relentlessly marches forward. We can't speed it up on a Friday afternoon when we'd like to. We can't slow it down on our holidays when we'd like to. Uh, you can't go forward. You can't go back. It, it is uh, an hour for, for me is an hour for you. And it's the same uh, passing of time beating relentlessly forward. That is our experience of time. But, but, when we open up the Bible, 
we begin to glimpse the fact that God's relationship to time is different from ours. God's relationship to time is different from ours. If you're here and as a visitor and a guest today, you're very welcome. It's great to have you. But we're in the middle of a series where we've been exploring some eight big ways in which God is radically different from us and how we get into trouble when we try to, to when we think we're like him. Um, and uh, I'm very grateful to the guys who, who stepped into the breach while I was away. Uh, but this uh, morning, we're thinking of the fact that God is eternal. God is eternal. Uh, we get a glimpse of that in Psalm 90. Before the mountains were born, uh, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, the mountains are some of those permanent, long-lasting, secure things that we can imagine. And yet, Moses, the writer, is saying, before the mountains were even thought about, God was there, uh, and they'll be, he'd be there long after they're gone. Um, God is everlasting. God is everlasting. Uh, he will never run out of energy. Uh, he will never need to be replaced. Uh, he will never die. He is everlasting. Everything we can conceive of has an end. God does not. God does not. Um, but what I think is even more mind-boggling, again, this may be, maybe it's just me, but I, I can sort of rest with the fact that God goes on and on and on and on. That's okay, I can conceive of that. But what, what Moses is actually saying here is God is not only everlasting, he's from everlasting. He's from everlasting. He never had a beginning. No one ever made God. There was never a time when God was not. Now, when you start to think of, stop and think about that, that begins to, your brain starts to hurt there. That, that, whoa, I, that's, I reach the ceiling of my understanding very quickly there. And, and I, I'm, that's unfathomable to me. Uh, theologians uh, tell us that God is outside of time. God is outside of time. We catch a glimpse of that in Psalm 90, again in verse 4. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. So a thousand years like 24 hours, or a thousand years like a watch in the night, which is only three hours. God relates to time differently than we do. Uh, and theologians tell us that because God created time... He is outside of time and not limited by time uh, like we are. Now, for us, as we live our lives, we live our lives moment by moment. We live it sequentially. And so the past is gone. Uh, the future's not here yet. And all I've got access to is the present. And that's it for us. All we've got access to is this present moment. But when theologians tell us that God is eternal, what they mean is that God has got access to every moment in his present. Let me stop and think about that just for a second. So for so 6,000 years of world history or millions of years of world history, depending on your view of how old the world is, right through the whole of the Bible story, through the, the rise and fall of all the emperor, empires since, through World War I and World War II, through 
through all of history, every moment of history, and every moment that has not yet been from now until the end of the world that lies before us. Every, God has access to every moment immediately. They are all in his present. I'm, I'm struggling to find the words to describe that. But that's the picture we, that emerges when we begin to look at who God is. Who God is. God is radically different from us. He's radically different from us. He's not limited by time in the way that we are. But that, that's the difficult bit. Okay, that was the difficult concept for us to try to get our heads around. But the Bible, and especially Ecclesiastes 3, and turn back to Ecclesiastes 3 if you've turned away from it. Um, Ecclesiastes 3 and Psalm 90 in many ways really tell us that the idea of God being eternal is not a philosophical problem for you to get your head around. It's not a puzzle for you to try to solve. It's actually designed, that truth is meant to be helpful and comforting for God's people in practice. It's meant to be helpful. It's it's a practical idea. And I think Ecclesiastes 3 gives us three ways, three ways in which uh, this idea that God is eternal, the God of infinite days, is, is practically helpful for us. I think if, and because rather, God is the God of infinite days, he is eternal, not limited by time in the way that we are. That means three things. Number one, we can look back at our past with peace. We can look back at our past with peace. We can look f- towards our future without any anxiety. And we can live in the present with wisdom. Okay, let me try to, try to spell that out for you. First then, the idea that we can look back at our past with peace. Um, a few months ago, we endeavored to try to study, wrestle with the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a difficult book. It's a, it's a tough read. Um, it's, it's, he's, the teacher, the writer of this book, is brutally honest at times, uh, and it's very difficult. But again and again, he gives us two lessons. The book, in essence, is about living wisely in God's world. How do we live wisely in God's world? And again and again, the teacher says two things to live wisely in God's world. Number one, you need to face facts. You need to face, don't be naive. You need to face facts. Life is fleeting. It's frustrating. It's confusing. It's uncertain. There you go. Face facts. And yet he doesn't, he, he's not an atheist. He doesn't give in to despair uh, because he also says, number two, you need to face facts. But then secondly, if you're to live wisely in God's world, you need to focus on God. You need to focus on God. Two things in particular you need to focus on. God is the great creator. He's the great creator who gives us every good gift that we have to enjoy, to be received. Don't hold on to it too tightly. It'll never satisfy you, but nevertheless, receive it with thanksgiving and enjoy it. All the good gifts come from him. And then secondly, focus on God because he is the great judge. He's the great judge. He sees all the brokenness in this world. He sees the injustice. He sees the pain. And one day, one day, in our future, 
he will restore everything that's broken and renew this world. Trust him. That's the message, effectively, of the book of Ecclesiastes. Face facts, focus on God. And in this passage, then, in particular, he does this in a particular way. Number one, he says, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, the teacher says, face facts, you're limited by time. Face facts, you're limited by time. But focus on God, because he's not. Because he's not. Um, let's go through this then. Uh, in verse 1, we have, in many ways, the heading. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun. And then in verses 2 to 8, you have this poem that in many ways explains that, show, unpacks that idea for you. There's a time for everything uh, under the sun. And what we have is a beautiful poem in verses 2 to 8, uh, which are made up of these pairs, 14 pairs of polar opposite things. Um, And it's a poetic way of describing everything, embracing everything in life. Because the polar opposites are meant to summarize everything that's in between. So if we would say, it's not exact parallel, but if we were to say today, he's dressed in the finest clothes from top to toe. We don't just mean he has a really nice hat and lovely shoes but then dowdy in between. No, 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 we mean he, the whole of him, every part of him is dressed in fancy clothes. And so in the same idea we have here, when uh, the, the writer says there's a time to be born and a time to die, he doesn't just mean that your beginning and your end are fixed. He means, no, there's, there's a fixed order for everything in between. There's a time for first teeth. There's a time for first steps. There's a time for the first day at school. Uh, There's a time for your first kiss. There's a time for your first day on the job. There's a time for your first house. But also there's a time for your final day, your final day at work, your final day living in your house as you move into the retirement home, and ultimately your final day of life. There's a sequence and an order to life. We recognize that, don't we? There's an or- a fixed order to life. Um, we don't have time to go through this poem uh, line by line, but I just want you just, if you've got it open, digitally, physically, just glance your eye down that list from verses 2 to 8. And I want you to notice three things about life, about life as we move through time as we go through all these various stages in life. First, how varied life is. Uh, There is a time, as we've already been praying, there's a time for for weeping, and there's a time for laughter, there's a time for dancing, there's a time for mourning, there's a time for for keeping, and there's a time, my wife's not here, there is a time for throwing away. Okay, there's a time for throwing away. Uh, Oh, she'll kill me for that. Um, But we do it all, don't we? We We do it all. Um, there's, um, but notice how, first, how varied life is. Notice how relational life is. Almost every pair, I think I could probably argue every pair, is about our relatedness, our connectedness to other people. We weep and mourn at the loss of a relationship. We dance with someone. We embrace someone. You love someone, you hate another someone. 
It's all about our relationship. Life is all about navigating our different relationships and navigating the different stages of our different relationships. Life is uh, relational. So notice how varied life is, how relational life is. And then thirdly, how broken life is. There's so many negative things in that list. Um, There is um, weeping. There's mourning. uh, There's tearing. There's hating. And there's warring. They're all there. This list is a, a this poem is a potent reminder that we live our lives outside the Garden of Eden. We live our lives in a broken world under the curse. And so it will be fleeting and it will be frustrating. Um, as I look out and see some of you who are still really young, uh, many of you have not yet experienced deep hurt or crushing disappointment. And as I look out, I, I can say sadly, yet confidently, you will. You will. It's normal in this broken world. It's to be expected. The writer then picks up on one idea. I just want you to glance at one particular example where past hurt can be the deepest. Disappointment, the most severe, where the scar might never heal and you might never get over the sorrow. Here's an example. He uses the example of verse 16, injustice. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. Maybe you take your case to court and you lose. Uh, you take it to the court of appeal uh, and no one sides with you there either. Uh, you take it to the supreme court in the land and even though you are in the right, you lose. Not only are you de- declared in the wrong, then financially you lose paying for the trial. That, that is... Painful, painful. That will leave a scar that might never heal. But, but there's, but that's just a, depending on the case. Then it only gets worse. Think of the parents who are denied justice for the murder of their child in the past. Again, that's a scar you'll never heal from. A sorrow that you'll never recover from. In fact, it'll leave a fury and a pain that you'll carry for the rest of your days. Injustice is sadly common and real. And what are we to do with it? What are we to do with it? Well, the writer is saying here, because God is outside time, we can face our past with peace. Because For God, who's outside time, there are no cold cases. There is no statute of limitations. There's nothing that's happened too far in the past to prosecute. Because for God, uh, verse 15, he will call the past to account. He will call the past to account. If you've got the same edition of the Bible as I have, the NIV, you'll notice in verse 15 there's a little footnote 
And then at the bottom, there's an alternative translation. God calls back the past. God calls back the past. Uh, The word that's used there for what God will do with the past, call it back, uh, is the same word used of uh, King Saul in 1 Samuel 10, when just before he becomes king, he's out searching, seeking out some donkeys that have gone missing. He's out to call them back. And the picture here of God is that God, although for us, when something has been chased off by time into the past, for us it's gone, lost, inaccessible forever. But that's not true for God. That's not true for God. He is able to dial back the past, fetch every incident of hurt and injustice, and bring it into his present to deal with it justly and fairly. And God will do that, according to the writer of Ecclesiastes. And so for us, in our hurt, in our disappointment, in our pain, and in our sorrow, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, don't look back at your past and let bitterness and resentment eat you up. Don't do that. Don't let the desire to retaliate overcome you. As a friend of mine put it, it's a bit cheesy, but my friend of mine put it, he said, uh, don't hold a grudge because God's the judge. Don't hold a grudge because God's the judge. I think that's really helpful. I want to add one word to that. Don't hold a grudge because God is the timeless judge. And he will bring every incident of injustice and pain and hurt into his present and he will judge it. And so we can let it go. We can look back at our past with peace and trust God to deal with it. God's, the fact that God is the God of eternal days means we can look back at our past with peace. Secondly, we can look to our future without anxiety. We can look at our future without anxiety. How does the fact that God is uh, eternal help us with that? Well, verse 11, he, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God will make everything beautiful in its time, but no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Think of children. Many of our children's frustrations come from the fact that they cannot see the bigger picture and the bigger priorities that their mum and dad have. Isn't that right? That's right. That's what, that's what many of the frustrations stem from that, from their limited perspective. So n- no, you, you can't have that bag of Haribo now because dinner is about to be put on the table. Okay? Frustration. Um, no, you can't stay up and watch another episode of Octonauts cartoons on the iPad because you've got to go to bed because you've got to get up for school in the morning. Frustration. Uh, you get the idea. You get the idea. No, you can't go out in just shorts and a t-shirt because the weather forecast says there's going to be snow today. Right? It's, you can't do that. Um, the, 
However, you know, we, we snicker at that and we recognize that, but the, the reality is that we're like that as Christians. We're like that as Christians. Uh, part of our biggest problem is that we forget that we are meant to relate to God like children trusting a loving Father. We fail to, to, to see God and to believe God and to trust God in his wisdom and in his goodness. We cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He is the God who is eternal. He knows the beginning and he knows the end. He sees the big picture. Now, we would love to know the big picture. We'd love to know the big picture. We'd love to know where it's going. Uh, We'd love to know our part in the big picture. Uh, And we would love to know that God is going to make it beautiful, our lives beautiful, our part of the big picture beautiful in our time. But God doesn't do that. He's making everything beautiful in his time. And that leads for us uh, childlike and often childish frustration and anger when we should be trusting our loving Father and our good God. We long to know the big picture, but we cannot see it. We're not built to perceive the big picture. We are so small as creatures. We cannot see what God is doing from beginning to end. Because God's big picture involves billions of people over thousands of generations where he's bringing everything together in an amazing tapestry of dark threads and light threads together to weave a beautiful picture. We can therefore, I think, if we think of God rightly, begin to look at our future without anxiety because God knows where it's going. We should trust him. Not just because he's wise and good, because he is those things, but also because he's eternal. He's eternal. He sees the big picture. And as a friend of mine put it, um, I think this is helpful again, uh, part of growing up as a Christian is growing small. Part of growing up as a Christian is growing small. Recognizing that our perspective is so limited that we just should trust God for the future. Not give in to the tidal wave of anxiety. And part of our anxiety comes from this desire to be in control. To bring things to the, to the beautiful idea that we have. And not trusting that God's got a bigger picture and larger goals than we do. Because God is timeless and eternal, we can look at our past with peace. He will deal with every hurt and injustice. And we can look at our future without anxiety. He is working all things together into something truly beautiful, even though we don't see it and cannot fully understand it yet. Lastly, we need to live our lives Um, Because God is eternal, it's possible to live our lives with wisdom in the present. It's possible to live our lives with wisdom in the present. How do we do that? I think there's three aspects to this. First, uh, which we saw in um, Psalm 90. Uh, Psalm 90 teaches us that although God has eternal days, we do not. 
We're like the grass of the field. Our lives are fleeting and soon over. God is everlasting, but we do not. We are not. It's not automatic that we will go on forever. In fact, it is natural and normal for us to die. But not just to die physically, but also to be cut off, uh, which is the real sting of death, to be cut off in our relationships forever. But nevertheless, Romans 6, verse 23 says this, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the everlasting God, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is possible for us to have a future, a future beyond death, eternal life that goes on forever with the everlasting God. And it's a gift that he offers us. So the first way for you to be wise is to receive that gift. Now I appreciate for most of us in this room we've already done that. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet admitted your guilt to God. Accepted that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your hatred, your wounding of others, your selfishness and pettiness you haven't accepted that Jesus is God and died on the cross for you and asked him for his forgiveness, then today, now is the time to accept that gift. Don't wait till tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Do it today. Accept the gift that he has today. That's the first way to be wise. But for those of us who have already done that, who have asked the Lord Jesus for his forgiveness, trusting in what he did on the cross for us in the past, for hope for the future, if we've already done that. How are we to live wisely in the present? Well, two things, uh, if that's us. First, uh, according to Ecclesiastes 3, we are to recognize that God's our creator. We're to recognize that God is our creator. Verse 12 and 13, know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. We're to recognize that God is the creator who gives every good gift, and we are to receive it with thankfulness and joy and passion and enthusiasm and to make the most of the lives that we've got. The the flip side of that, of course, is to be lazy. Just assume, I'll always have more time. I'll always have more time. You don't, you don't know you'll always have more time. You don't know that. So make the most of the today that you've got. Make the most of the today that you've got and accept all the good things that come today with thanksgiving. God, recognize God as the creator. Then for us, the second way that we live wisely is to recognize that God is the judge. Recognize that God is the judge. Um, that one day all will have to give an account to him And the amazing idea here is that God has given us an immense privilege. The immense privilege is that in our limited number of days, which are very limited, in our limited number of days, we can make a difference for eternity. In our limited number of days, we can make a difference in eternity. That great theologian Maximus Decimus Meridius, uh, gladiator, Uh, The one line that's really of any value in that whole film is that he says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. What we do in life echoes 
in eternity. And on that point, he's exactly right. What we do in life can make a difference for eternity. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? How are you going to invest your now that will make a difference for eternity? God has given you the privilege of doing exactly that. You could, you could live your life just furthering your career, finding more pleasure for yourself, making your life more comfortable. You could do that. Or, or, you could invest in people who will last forever. You could give your life over to love and serve and show compassion, to clothe and feed other people, win a hearing for the gospel, act in kindness, serve other people and share the good news of Jesus with the hundreds of people that you rub shoulders with on a weekly basis who are ready to meet their judge, but they're not ready. And you have the privilege of making a difference now in our limited number of days for eternity. And so the question is, will you live wisely? Will you live wisely? Numbering your days correctly. I want you to see, this is a, it's a big idea that God is outside of time. And we've very quickly struggled to process that. But I want you to see it's incredibly practical. Incredibly practical. Because if we truly believe that God is eternal, we can look at our past with peace. We can look towards our future without anxiety. And we can live wisely in the present. As we move through to communion and respond to that, let's pray together.